The morning text is from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 15. I invite you to turn with me and follow as it is read. 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 28. Now, if Christ is preached as raised from the dead, how can you, some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified that God, he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all men most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. Then it is coming all those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection under him, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things under him, that God may be everything to everyone. One of the most heartbreaking words, I think, in human language is the word closed. You plan a day at the zoo, and Dad takes a day off, and Mom packs a special lunch, and the kids are all excited. You pile in the car, you drive a half an hour, and you get to the gate, and it says, closed. And hope deferred makes the heart sick, like the proverb says. You're 11 years old, and it's summertime, and the ball teams are starting to practice. And for the first time, Mom, can I play baseball this summer? Maybe that would be a good thing this summer. And so you get a brand new glove, and Dad pitches with you in the backyard, and you go out for the team, and you practice for them for two weeks. And it turns out there are too many kids for this team, and they didn't plan for two teams. And so there's got to be a cut, and you go that afternoon, and they read the roster, and you're not on it. And you take the back roads home. The coach says, we'll plan for two teams next year, and it doesn't help. It's closed. Or maybe you're 13 years old and you start to dream about marriage. You dream about that perfect person and what it would be like to have somebody hold you and love you more than anybody else in all the world and what that day would be like. And then one door closes and then another door closes and another door closes. 
Or maybe you're at mid-career, mid-40s, let's say. And you step back and you look at your life and your career and you say, what do I want to accomplish here now in the next 20 years of my active professional life? And you think it through and you say, I'm going to stick with the firm and give it my best shot. And so you work nights and you work long hours on the weekend and you work on vacations and five years go by and you're 50 and they pass right over you when it comes to that advancement. And you don't make it. And the door closes on that dream career. Or maybe for you, all the doors opened. And the relationships clicked. And you made the team. And then, somewhere along the way, the doctor said, it's a rare kind of cancer. Or it's AIDS. And all the doors seem to close at once. Or worst of all, You have made it to the top in your career. You have had the dream relationship. You've made every team and walked through every open door. And every one of them without Jesus. And now you've died and you're standing before heaven's door. And it's closed. And you say, Lord, Lord, open to me. And the voice comes back, truly, truly, I say to you, I never knew you. The word closed is a heartbreaking word in this life and in the life to come. And I want to declare loud and clear this morning that the meaning of Easter is that God is in the business of clearing this world of heartbreak. The meaning of an empty tomb or the opening of a closed tomb is that God has begun a campaign with Jesus Christ to open a million doors of hope to people who trust in Him. The verse that I'm going to focus on this morning from our text in 1 Corinthians 15 is verse 25. It is a verse that gripped me because it is so full of door-opening, sovereign hope. It says, Jesus must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. Jesus must reign. And as I meditated on that verse, I saw four things about the reign of Jesus Christ. And I hardly had to twist and maneuver at all to get these four things to spell open. (laughs) O-P-E-N. The opening of the reign at the resurrection of Jesus. The presence of the reign here and now in your life. The extent of the reign Unto all his enemies and the necessity of his reign in the deity of his father. And so I want to talk about those four dimensions 
of the reign of God this morning. And I want you, with the pen of your heart, of your will, to write O-P-E-N over the door of disappointment in your life. I want you to take the one that has you down most now. You got it? One door. Not all of them. Just one closed door in your life. It might have closed yesterday or 10 years ago or 30 years ago. And it's still closed. And I want you to write on the wall, I'm tempted to say, beside the door. Because of an analogy I'm going to draw to this surprise door that opens up in the life of a believer. But I'm just going to have you write it right over the door. Let's write it this way so you can read it. O-P-E-N. Open. Right over the door of the disappointment in your life. Okay? You got it? Now I want you to picture a scene with me before we go to the text. It's Easter morning, uh, evening. Easter evening. First Sunday after the resurrection, the Lord has been raised from the dead since before dark in the morning. It's evening now. The disciples are very scared about what the Jews and the Romans might do to them if they're caught. And so, where are they? They're behind closed doors. Underline the word. Let me read it to you. John 20, verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being closed where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came. And stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. How did he get in? Now, listen, isn't the point of that story, it's not the only one either, it happens once again in John. Isn't the point of that story recorded for us? To tell us that when we have experienced the slamming of a door, the darkening of the room, the rising of fear, and no exit for us and no entrance for God, that the risen Christ is not frustrated in getting to us without any doors that we can see. That's why I said I almost want you to write it beside the door. Because in the waiting room of faith, there are surprise doors of hope. He was in the midst. That has happened to every single believer in this room. I call it conversion. It has happened more than once. In all the other ways, you've experienced the surprise openings of the dead-end streets of your life. And it can happen again. Now, once you've written O-P-E-N across the wall in this room this morning now, no matter how dark the room, no matter how weak your hand as you write, be now like the psalmist in Psalm 130 who says, I waited for the Lord. My soul waited. My soul waits for the Lord, yea, like a watchman for the morning. Like a watchman for the morning, my soul waits for the Lord. 
And I can promise you on the authority of the reign of Christ, there will be an opening for those who wait in faith. Let me help you write it now in big letters. Let's start with O. O-P-E-N. O stands for opening. The opening of the reign of Christ. When was it? Was it the resurrection? Or has Christ reigned since creation? We know from John chapter 1 and Hebrews chapter 1 that all things were made through him and without him was nothing made that was made. We know from Hebrews 1, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now, when I hear those two truths... He made the universe and he holds it in being by the word of his power. I must conclude he reigns. He's king. I mean, what meaning would it have to be king if you couldn't be king when you had made the world and hold the world in being? So I conclude he has been reigning over this universe ever since he made it. Because he holds it in being by simply thinking, world, stand there. Sun, rise. Rain, cover this Easter morning. In order to test whether their joy is in me or in the weather. But, clearly the New Testament teaches that the reign of God begins, or the reign of Jesus begins at the resurrection. So, we must probe as to what's new, what's special, what's distinct, what's different about the reigning of the Son of God since the resurrection. And there are at least three massive and important differences between the reign of the Son now, since the resurrection, and the reign of the Son before the Incarnation. Let me mention them for you. Number one, before Christ was born of a virgin, lived, died, and rose again, he was not a God-man. He was simply deity, the second person of the Trinity, equal with his Father in glory and being. He was not a man. Today, the Son of God is a Son of Man in a mysterious union. I don't know if it blows your mind away like it does mine to believe that the ruler of the universe today is a man. Like you and me. A human reigns over the universe, mingled in his person with Godhood. That was not true before. So the first thing we can say about the reigning of Christ since the resurrection is that it is the reigning of a God-man. The reigning of one who has tasted of our humanity, taken it upon himself, and will keep it forever. That's the first difference. It's the reigning of Jesus, Savior, God-man. The second difference from the reigning of the Son of God before the Incarnation and His reigning since the 
resurrection is that he is now reigning as Messiah, promise fulfiller, a sitter upon the throne of his son, David, or his father, David, I should say. In other words, he is he has now in Jesus fulfilled the promises of the Old Testament. Before the son came into the world, he was king incognito. You read the Old Testament in vain looking for the son of God explicitly. He's not there explicitly. He's incognito in all of his activity there in Providence. Same way in the 33 years here on earth, isn't it? I mean, here he was. The kingdom had come. The king was here. Who saw him? A little teeny group of people who had eyes to see. By and large, king incognito. In fact, he played right into that. He said, don't tell them what you've seen. He yields and he says, be quiet. You're, you're the Christ. Don't tell anybody. He keeps it incognito. Don't do anything until I'm raised from the dead. Then he breaks out of the tomb. He instructs them for 40 days about the kingdom of God. And then he ascends to his father's right hand. And he says, basically, now let it be known. I am Messiah. I am Lord. I am king. And I reign over the world. So the second difference is that. He is God incognito before the incarnation and resurrection. And since then, he is openly declared to be Messiah, King, Lord. Third, since the resurrection, Jesus is reigning on the basis of the cross and the finished work of his atoning death. In other words, the the word of the king as it descends to this earth, is the word of the cross in this age. He is reigning primarily today savingly. This is so important to see. Judgment, which is a function of the king, has been postponed to the second coming. And today, Jesus reigns with arms wide open, to his enemies even, those who would believe. This Sunday morning, this Easter Sunday morning, is part of a day of grace, a reigning of grace, not part of a day of judgment. I have come into the world to save, not to judge, and that will not cease to be true until the second coming. And therefore, those of you who are here this morning who are not Christ's, who have never bowed the knee to your sovereign king in heaven, who have not entrusted your soul to him for the forgiveness of your sins and for the guidance of your life, the arms of Jesus Christ reigning in heaven today are wide open to you. This is not a day of judgment. This is a day of grace. An Easter Sunday morning with the declaration of Christ bursting the bonds of death would be the greatest of all days in your life to surrender to the king and say, from now on, I swear allegiance and fealty to the king of kings and lay down the weapons of my rebellion and turn over my whole life to him. You could do it while I'm preaching. I invite you to do it. I urge you to do it. I was standing at the door there after the
first service. And a man rushed in and said, do you know Nancy Mathiason? I think she was here. I'd seen her sitting right up there. And he said, her father's in the MMC with a serious heart attack. And so we found Nancy and sent her off. Where was this man when he had that heart attack this morning? I don't know. I would guess he was in church. And it just hit me like a thunderbolt. Why should any of us think we're going to make it through this day? This is a day of grace, and maybe it's only a morning of grace. But it's all grace. And Jesus speaks through my voice to you right now, saying, This is the appointed hour. This is the hour of salvation. There is no need to postpone your coming to Jesus Christ as King. So those are the three differences now between the reign of Jesus Christ as Son of God before the Incarnation and afterwards. Before the Incarnation, He is only God. Now He is reigning as God-man. Before He was not openly manifest as Messiah, promise fulfiller, sitter on the throne of His father David. Now He is. Before He was not working on the basis of his finished work. Now the work is finished and his reign is the reign of grace and he is pouring out the blood of his own self to redeem sinners. Jesus, or Peter, put it like this. This Jesus God raised up, of this we are all witnesses. Let all the house of Israel know therefore assuredly that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Now he is reigning as Lord and Christ. So the O that you're writing, hopefully, over the door of disappointment in your life, is that the reign of Christ opened with the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Now write the second letter, P. The presence of this reign. There are a lot of people, maybe some of you, who only think of the reign of Christ, if you believe it, as beginning at the second coming, when he's descending with his holy angels in the power of his father. Then he will set up his kingdom. Then he will rule and reign over the world. That's almost the opposite of what our text says. You see verse 25, it says, He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Now, what does that word until mean? It means two things. First, it means that he is reigning now until something else happens. Now, that's the word. He is present in his reigning. He is reigning now, it is not merely future, it is not merely past, the reign of Christ is now and it is here. The second coming will be like a thunderclap of, of victory in the reign that began with his resurrection. We can see what that thunderclap of victory means in verse 23. It says, at his coming, those who belong to Christ will be raised from the dead. So all these people who are believers in the back of this card, they're going to be rising from the dead on that day, 
and there'll be a tremendous victory over the enemy of death. But don't begin to think that that's when the reign of Christ begins. This text says that he is reigning now until that day and its final consummation beyond. That's the first thing until means. Here's the second thing until means. It means that while he's reigning here and now, he's reigning to put his enemies under his feet. In other words, it's not a passive reign. So many of us think that he ascended, he left the earth, he went back to heaven that's far away, zillion, million miles, who knows where, sitting on the throne with his father, his arms are folded, his legs are crossed, waiting while we do our job down here to get the evangelism of the world done, and then he will stand up and begin to reign again. It's so wrong. It's so wrong. He lives and reigns here and now, in this room, in the lives of believers, and over this world by providence. If a football player is injured in the third quarter, and he's good, and everybody wants him to stay in, and the coach looks at his wrist, perhaps, and says, I think you better come out. And he says, no, I'm going to play until... We win. Well, you know two things now about the rest of this game. Number one, he's playing now. And number two, he's playing to win. And so when Jesus says, or when Paul says about Jesus, he must reign until he puts all of his enemies under his feet, until he wins the game, then you know two things. He's playing. He's not on the sidelines in heaven. He's playing today, right now, and he's playing to win, to subdue all the enemies of your life and mine. Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Those are the words of the risen Lord. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. Now, do you see what this means in terms of the reign of Jesus Christ. What this means is, now that I have conquered death, now that I have been openly displayed as the king of all and the fulfiller of all promises, I am the rightful sovereign over every people group in this world. You are now my emissaries and my ambassadors. I now authorize you to go everywhere in the world, penetrate every people, and tell them, Jesus reigns, or as we sing sometimes, our God reigns and he is Jesus Christ. And you tell those people, no matter what their religion is, no matter what their color is, no matter what their political persuasion is, your king is Jesus Christ, who died for sins and rose again and will come again to call men to account. Turn from sin, bow before your sovereign, become his own. And be saved. That's the extension of the reign of Jesus Christ in the world by his sovereign authority over all powers in heaven and all powers in the earth. It was the conviction that drove the early Protestant missionary movement. I was just rereading again last night The Puritan Hope by Ian Murray and that chapter on missions. And what a power it gave to these men because they believed. They believed so deeply that Christ was going to extend his reign in victory over the unbelief of this world. Now, there's a problem here. 
a problem for unbelief or for doubt. It's been a problem of scoffers ever since the beginning. You read about it in 2 Peter 3. There are people who scoff and say, oh, right, right, sure. 2,000 years he's been reigning and he can't establish his kingdom. Some king. I personally think it's all a big myth or he would have set up his kingdom already. Anybody that can't establish a kingdom on this little planet when he made the universe in 2,000 years is just not worth worshiping. That's not new. The problem with that kind of thinking that elevates human reasonings and human opinions to the level of divine indictments is that it forgets that a thousand years is as a day with the Lord. It forgets that God's strategies in warfare are not our strategies. Remember Gideon? It forgets that God's timing is not our timing. You remember the 400 years the people of Israel stayed in Egypt? Why? Because the sins of the Amorites was not complete. It forgets that the Father had fixed the times and the seasons by His own authority, that Jerusalem will be trodden down until the times of the Gentiles is over. God has not dropped the ball in the ruling of this world. Jesus Christ is sovereign over all the maneuverings of the mission of this world, and He reigns and will bring this world to a great consummation with people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation in His time and for His glory. And I just plead with you to believe God in His Word and not to elevate your problems to the level of indictments in the courtroom of heaven. It is not fitting for a creature. And now, I want you to write E. O. The reign of Christ began and, with, and opened with the, an empty tomb. P. The reign of Christ is present here and now, ruling over our enemies. And E. Its extent is how far? How wide? How inclusive is the reign of Jesus Christ? And I can point you to a, another word in verse 25, and it's the word all. You see it? He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Or look at the word every in verse 24. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. In other words, there's no disease, there's no habit, there's no addiction, there's no bad habit, there's no vice or fault or temper or moodiness or pride or self-pity or strife or jealousy or perversion or greed or laziness that Jesus Christ does not aim to overcome on behalf of His people and for the sake of His glory. And the encouragement, mark this now, the encouragement in this is that if you trust Christ, that is, if you're on Christ's side, then every time you set your face to oppose an enemy to your happiness or an enemy to your faith, or an enemy to his honor, 
He kicks in with resurrection power to fight with you. That's the implication. He is reigning over all his enemies. He will subdue them in his time. And I tell you, this gives me so much encouragement, even over the things I've been laboring with for 20 years in my life. You know, personality traits, you just like to kick in the garbage. And you will despair if you don't believe that all his enemies, including irritability, will be subdued. And that tomorrow there may be a great victory. Or the week after, to be a person who is always hoping in the reign of God to subdue enemies here and now. And that includes every single obstacle to your faith and ultimately to your total happiness. Jesus Christ is now putting all his enemies under his feet. Finally, I want you to write in here. Over the door. The reign of Christ opened with the resurrection of Jesus. It is present right now in your life, in your marriage, in your work, in your body. Reigning to conquer your enemies. The extent of that reign and that victory is universal. There is no opponent to his will. There is no enemy to his glory. There is no obstacle to your holy happiness. That will not be subdued by the reign and the extent of this kingdom. And finally, in the necessity of it. Why? Why does he reign? Do you see where I got this word in verse 25? I got it from the word must. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Now, why must he reign? Where does this necessity come from? And as I looked around in the context and tried to meditate through to an answer on this question, I simply answer like this. The necessity of the reign of Jesus Christ is rooted in the right of God the Father to be all in all. Verse 27 says, God, meaning God the Father, has put all things in subjection under Christ's feet. Now, why? What was the purpose of God the Father in using a mediator king to subdue everything? Three reasons. Number one, he wanted to gather a redeemed people from the world. You can't do that without a mediator if you're a holy God and there needs to be an atonement. To gather a redeemed people from the world. Number two, to defeat all the enemies of the king. And number three, to bring that whole host of the redeemed into the presence of God and direct their attention now to the glory of the Father. My closing admonition to you is no matter how dark the room where you live, no matter how tight the door that has slammed, write with me, oh, his reign opened at the resurrection. P, it is present right now, not distant and out of reach. He is reigning now in my life. E, 
It extends to every enemy. Not this hard one is excluded. Nothing is excluded. And it's necessary. It is built right into the very deity of God the Father. Picture it now as we close. The work of redemption is over. The Son is vindicated. The people of God are redeemed. He is elevated to God's right hand. And with the numberless crowds in his train, he turns away from them and bows before the Father on the throne and says, We and I, O Father, give you henceforth all the glory, all the honor, all the majesty and blessing and dominion forever and ever. And then comes the end and the beginning for all the people of God.